ಶ್ರೀಹರಿಂ ಪರಮಂದ ಉಪದೇಷ್ಟಾರೀಶ್ವರ ವ್ಯಾಪಕ ಕಾರಣ ತಮ್ಯಹಂ ಸೊ ವಿ ಸ್ಟಡಿಂಗ್ ದಿ ವೇದಾಂತಿಕ್ ಟೆಕ್ಸ್ಟ್ ಅಪರೋಕ್ಷ ಅನುಭೂತಿ ರಿಟನ್ ಬೈ ಶಂಕರಾಚಾರ್ಯ in studying vedanta in, in in the practice of vedanta you have um three stages first is shravana where you hear these truths from a teacher you study it systematically manana you reflect upon it ask all the questions you've got to ask clear up your doubts get clarity and then finally nididhyasana which means meditation the purpose of meditation in vedanta advaita vedanta is to assimilate the knowledge already gained in your study and reflection the knowledge already gained in shravana and manana what you want what you got from your study what you got clarity through your thinking now you assimilate it by by soaking it in by remaining in this knowledge by stabilizing yourself in this knowledge that's the purpose of vedantic meditation vedantic meditation is a little different from yogic meditation in yogic meditation you have to sit you can't be moving around and doing other things you have to close your eyes from the world you have to take your senses away from the world and concentrate within and go within in vedantic meditation the purpose is not to shut out the world the purpose is not to shut down thoughts rather you must think you must dwell on this knowledge that's the simplest way i can put it and it can be done in the midst of all our actions it can be done it can be also be done by sitting quietly in fact what is recommended is once you have studied and begun to get a sense of what vedanta talks about try to stay with it as long as possible in the middle of actions and at other times also sitting quietly withdrawing from the world so shankaracharya here after teaching up the vedantic truth now we have come to the third stage which is meditation nididhyasana but shankaracharya here creatively and uniquely approaches it in his own way what he says is he takes 15 terms from yoga from the yoga practices eight of them are directly from the ashtanga yoga of patanjali so he takes 15 terms 15 practices which have their own meanings in yoga various branches of yoga and he changes the meanings he gives the non dualistic advaitic meaning so as a result what you have is a set of 15 practices which there will be a basic yogic practice and an advanced advaitic non dualistic practice remember he is contrary to appearances he is actually not criticizing the yogic practices or making fun of them sometimes he does seem to be rather sarcastic about it but uh, those he clearly says these are they are very useful as a foundation so the yogic practices we will see and their higher advaitic meaning that's what we have been doing we have seen two of them in the of the 15 we have seen two yama and niyama 
Now we will go on to the third one. <clears throat> In the list of 15, the third one is Tyagaha, renunciation. Tyagaha means renunciation. That's the third practice. Uh, verse number 106. Sadhya moksha mayo yataha Sadhya moksha mayo yataha The abandonment of the illusory universe by realizing that it is the all-conscious Atman or Atman which is all-consciousness. This is the real renunciation honored by the great since it is the nature of immediate liberation. That should really make us perk our ears up. Immediate liberation, that means the moment you, have, you do this, you are liberated. Really, what is that? So, Tyagaha, renunciation. First, the basic practice, then the advanced practice. First, what it means in, for a beginner, and then for the non-dualistic interpretation. Tyaga is well known. Renunciation is well known. Hinduism, some religions in the world have strong monastic traditions. So, for example, Hinduism is a strong monastic tradition. Multiple orders of monks and nuns. And for thousands of years, Buddhism is strongly monastic. Um, for example, the Dalai Lama is a monk. Jainism is strongly monastic. Christianity has a strong monastic tradition. Especially Catholic Christianity has a strong monastic tradition. And there are religions which have no explicit monastic tradition. Judaism is one of them. Islam is another one, though there are um, hermits and ascetics in Islam. But generally, monastic traditions as such are not there, though there are Sufi orders. Then uh, Sikhism is another generally non-monastic tradition, but the Sikhs have great respect for monks. I know from personal respect in the Himal uh, personal experience in the Himalayas. So there are these um, religions which have strong monastic traditions. There's an emphasis on renunciation. So if you're really spiritual, what you do is you become a monk or a nun. You give up worldly pursuits. That's the pursuit of accumulating wealth, uh, setting up your family, uh, pursuing a career. Um, all of that. You give up just basically what every other person does, the, the ordinary, the mainstream of life. And you concentrate exclusively on a spiritual life. That's what a monk does. So once you become a monk, what are the advantages? The advantages are, as a monk, you have no possessions, no personal possessions. You may, you're permitted to have your own toothbrush in the interests of hygiene. I mean, I'm joking, but yes, except a minimum set of possessions, you're not supposed to have other possessions. How would that be an advantage? It's a big advantage. Especially in this country, you could do with a little bit, little bit of uh, no possessions philosophy. Uh, here, for the first time, I saw there are these big buildings. It's called self-storage. So, when the junk overflows your house, it goes to the garage. <laughs> then when it, your garage is so packed you can't park your car in it, then it goes to self-storage. You have so much stuff. Life is comprised of stuff, especially in this country. 
So, no positions or minimal positions. A monk is supposed to have a, uh, have a begging bowl and a staff or a water pot maybe, that's it. One change of clothes maybe, that's it. And then, no duties. So, if you are in the world, you are in the, mid of a net, in the midst of a network of duties and obligations, whether you like it or not. So, if somebody is paying you, you have a duty to your employer. If you have a family, if you have parents and uh, you're in the middle of a family with, with uh, uh, a wife or husband or children, you have a duty to them. You stay in the middle of a community, maybe just your apartment and in that building block, but they, you have a duty to that, to the community, to the local, uh, to the nation and so on and so forth. A monk is explicitly set free from all duties save one. As a monk, <clears throat> the only obligation I can have is to be spiritual. And that's what I wanted in the first place. So you're not supposed to take up in traditional Hindu monasticism or Buddhist monasticism, you're not supposed to take up other duties. So obligations and duties are reduced. Relationships are all cut down to one. I have a monk has the same relationship with everybody. You can see them all as children of God or God manifesting in, in all these ways, right? So it's a spiritual relationship with everybody. So a kind of flat relationship with everybody. How is that an advantage? It is actually. If you have multiplicity of a network of relationships, imagine the energy that goes into maintaining that. The, the, just the sheer number of cards and gifts you have to send at Christmas. And um, keeping track of who is sending what to you. And if they don't send it, you feel offended or annoyed or hurt. So, so the, your dealings with the world are minimized. Your dealings, everything is reduced to a spiritual kind of life. That's the theory at least. And uh, in traditional Hinduism, a person was at the midst of a network of obligations, of relationships. So you were supposed to take care of your parents, so, um, uh, of your wider family, of your uh, wife or husband or children. You're supposed to make a life for yourself, earn your livelihood. You're supposed to be a good citizen. Uh, you have got religious duties. So there are rituals that you must perform if you are a good Hindu and so on. A network of duties um, connected you, uh, linked you to the rest of society. Now the only way you can, uh, you can rise above that or escape from that is with the permission of religion. You can't just walk away. So in Hindu monasticism, for example, the system that we go through, there is a ritualistic renunciation. A ritualistic renunciation called a Viraja Homa, which is done um, early and at, at sunrise on a particular holy day. In our order, it's on the birthday of Sri Ramakrishna, the next morning. And in the Himalayas, it's on Shivaratri night, the next morning, early morning. So that ritual is performed where you symbolically give up all connection to society, all connection to conventional religion, all connection to families. You give up all of that. You give up all the duties, all the obligations, but you also give up all the rights. You, you no longer, for example, in India, in law in India, Taking the vow of renunciation like I have done, they call it legal death. So it's equivalent to legal death. It's also worldly death. 
So to become a monk, you actually have to, there are some, some rituals which a Hindu has to perform for uh, departed ancestors. So if somebody's grandfather dies or parents die, then you have to perform some rituals, they are called Shraddha. Now, when you become a monk, I'm letting you into the secret. When you become a monk, before you perform the final vows of renunciation, one day before that, you are expected to perform these rituals, these ancillary rituals, for all your ancestors. Including the ones who are living. If your father and mother are living, you still have to perform that. Why? Because after you become a monk, you are nobody to them. You cannot go forth and perform those rituals for them. Because they are no longer your, any, any special relationship is not there anymore. Not only that, the interesting thing is, you have to perform that ritual for yourself. It's called Atma Shraddha. Because since you're not going to have a family, so there won't be anybody who's going to perform that ritual for you. And so the conventional understanding is if nobody performs a ritual for, for you, you are, tra you are transformed into a ghost, <laughs> wandering the uh, earth for eons to come. Don't worry. Don't think of going out there and per start performing these rituals. These are incentives made to, uh, to make you perform these rituals. <laughs> now, so you perform those. So you have no more rights to wealth. So your parental property, for example, which might have come to you automatically, that will not come to you anymore because you are not, you don't have a right to that. So all wealth, everything you have to give up. You are no longer a part of, you're not, you're not supposed to go out and vote. That, that's the, um, the, the code, you know, every kind of right which a citizen enjoys, which a person in society enjoys, that also you give up. You make your livelihood by begging for food and the minimum clothes that you, that you wear. So that's what a monk is supposed to do. And there is no transaction involved there because the persons who give you food, you're, because you're begging for that, the persons who give you food, you are not giving anything back in return directly to them. So they give you food out of their own free will. If they don't want to give you food, they need not. It's not an obligation. So a monk is supposed to beg for food, go out in the morning and beg for food in three households. It doesn't get enough on five households and that's it. You still don't get enough, you fast that day. There's a, a nice saying among the monks in the Himalayas. I'll tell you in Hindi, the, all the punches in Hindi, but I'll translate. I'll give you a watered down translation in English. Uh, about food. You can imagine that's a concern because <laughs> you have to beg for your food. Kabhi ghi ghana, to kabhi mutthi bhar chana, aur kabhi wo bhi mana. What does that mean? It rhymes nicely in Hindi. Sometimes you get rich food, which is, has a lot of ghee in it, clarified butter, and so it's rich food. Uh, very spicy and nicely prepared and the best kind of Indian food in the restaurant. Sometimes you get that. Some person who likes a monk might give you something very good. Or sometimes you may get a handful of gram, you know, the, the Bengal gram. It's, it's a kind of, um, what is it? Chickpeas, yeah, it's like that. That's all you get. That's all you get. And sometimes even that, you don't get that either. And one has to be, one has to main, maintain equanimity in all, uh, in all circumstances. You can't be delighted you got, um, what, um, curry or something like that, you know. <laughs> and you can't be annoyed or that nobody gave you any food. I remember once I was begging for food in the Himalayas in Uttarkashi with other monks. 
and there was another monk from our order um, who found it little insulting to have to beg for food like that. And there was this person, donors come, people who want to donate to monks. So donors come, one um, donor was there. They sometimes give you a little bit of money also, like a gift. So he was giving everybody a mango and one rupee. So I got my mango and one rupee as walking past and the monk behind me was hesitating. It was beneath his prestige to accept one rupee. <laughs> and until he was scolded by some other monk, go ahead and take it. <laughs> hmm. So that's the idea of monasticism. That is the, that is the basic practice. And you say, that's basic? That's the general idea of monasticism. But that's not what Shankaracharya is speaking about. He's speaking about something different. This is outward. Outwardly, one puts on a cloth. You will see a particular dress among Hindu monks or Buddhist monks, a kind of dress. This shows renunciation. One of the meanings of this cloth is it is of the color of fire, so fire of renunciation. But the real renunciation is always internal. Tyaga should be really internal, not external. Um, there is a story of the great sage Shukadeva who comes to the Emperor Janaka. The Emperor Janaka who is, uh, who is a philosopher, who is an enlightened person, a knower of Brahman. And Shukadeva of course is a very great sage, a great so one is an emperor, other one is a monk, an all-renouncing monk. And Shukadeva had, his only possession was the loincloth which he wore and one change of the loincloth, one, one more set. That's all. He had nothing else. Even Not even a pot for begging for food. Uh, he would beg for food with, uh, with hands. So he comes and has a long discussion on Vedanta with the emperor. And suddenly somebody bursts in upon them and says, Emperor, Emperor, I must intervene. Uh, there is a fire in the capital city. The city is of Mith Mithila. That's the city of Janaka. There's a fire there. And the sage leaps out of his, his chair and runs away, shoots off like, a, like an arrow. After some time, he comes back. And the king, who is the emperor, who is sitting quietly, he said, uh, Sage, where did you go to? Oh, oh, Shukadeva, where did you go to? Holy Sir, where did you go to? Suddenly like that. So, oh, I heard. Didn't you hear about the fire? I heard about the fire. I remembered I had washed my lion cloth and had kept it on a tree on the bank of the river. I just went to see whether that's burnt or not. But it's safe. I'm glad to tell you it's, it's okay. Um, and the king said, if the entire city, my capital city, if the entire city were to burn down, that also would be nothing to me. Don't misunderstand him. He engaged, he was not like Nero playing the, 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 the fiddle yeah. while Rome burned. No, he engaged himself in all the firefighting activities and did what a, an administrator person in charge is supposed to do. But all throughout he was serene and untouched. In Sanskrit, Mithilayam pradigdayam name dahati kinchana. Nothing is burnt for me even if the entire city is reduced to ashes. So he's an emperor, and yet completely detached from being an emperor. So he has strong internal tyaga in the midst of external possessions. Whereas the sage, the sage of course he was a great sage and had intense renunciation, but it's a story to illustrate that externally he had renounced everything. He had renounced everything externally, only a pair of loincloths. But he was so attached to that one. 
Sri Ramakrishna said, for a person, a householder, a person in a spiritual seeker who is in the midst of samsara, tag, internal renunciation is necessary. You must be, you must renounce internally. And then he says, Shonnashi Junno Bhairiyar For a monk, renunciation must be internal as well as external. Right? He pointed that out. Now, there's a very interesting story about Brihaspati, who is the guru, the sage, the guru of the gods, and uh, his son Kacha. So Kach, he comes, he learns everything. His son comes and learns all all knowledge and comes to uh, his father, back to his father, who is a great sage. And his father says, um, "Have you found peace?" And the boy says, "No, I have learned all of this, but I have no peace." How do I get peace? And the father says, through renunciation. Tyaga, renunciation. And the boy immediately decides, he knows, you have to become a monk. So he said, okay, I'll become a monk then. And then he gives up everything. He has only the staff and the, and the begging bowl. And he goes off on a tour of India to all the important pilgrim sites, depending solely on God, begging for his food and so on and so forth. Comes back after a year and his father says, well, have you attained peace? He says, no, I haven't attained peace. How does one get peace? And his father says, through renunciation. And he says, what can I renounce? Well, I renounce the begging bowl and I renounce the staff of the monk and even the dress of a monk. And I will not even beg for food. If, if God provides me with food, I will eat. Otherwise, I'll go hungry. So that kind, everything he gives up. And nude, he wanders all over uh, India to the, to the great pilgrim sites. And one year later, he comes back. Have you attained peace? He says, no, I haven't attained peace. How does one attain peace? Through renunciation. And then he thinks, what more can I renounce? I've given up everything. Well, the body is there. Maybe he, my dad means this. So I'll give up the body. So he lights this big bonfire and he's, jump. he's about to jump into the fire. His father says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. If you give up the body like this, it's not giving up the body because the bad karma will generate another body in your next life and you will have other lives and other bodies. So then he says, then what is renunciation? Tell me, I've tried for years. What is renunciation? His father points out, renunciation is not renunciation of the body. It's renunciation of the mind. Not only renunciation in the mind, renunciation of the mind. To the mind you must say, the, I am not the mind and it is not my mind. Not me, it's not I and it's not mine. Not I, not a mine, not only for things of the world, not for husband, wife and children, not for things of your possessions, your bank balance and your car, not for uh, clothes and food, not even for the body, but for the mind. That's where the Atman gets bound in samsara. <coughs> to the mind you must say, not me and not mine. Think about that. That's the, that's the place where you have to cut internally the knot of bondage. If you do that, external renunciation is not necessary. Because you've renounced everything. Externally everything may proceed as, as usual. So that cutting the link with the mind, renunciation of the mind, 
renunciation of the mind means you can't throw away the mind how can you throw off the mind the mind will still be there the body will still be there and the world will still be there but not i not mine this strong attitude i am the unattached witness of the mind i am the bright blue sky in which the clouds the different thoughts emotions ideas desires frustrations of the mind they come they float and they disappear i am the bright blue sky i am the pure consciousness unaffected by any of this that is real renunciation that is what shankaracharya is speaking about he says what is renunciation not becoming a monk you may or may not become a monk but that's not really renunciation he says the advanced practice of renunciation is renunciation of the universe how by seeing it as it really is that it is chidatmatva by seeing it as pure consciousness i and this universe are none other than the same pure consciousness then what is the universe name and form the moment you see it as name and form moment you see it as maya you have renounced it moment you see it you don't actually actually have to give up anything or accept anything do you remember the story of the princess of kashi what is the renunciation of the princess of kashi did he have to i will not repeat the story but did the prince have to say oh i renounce the princess of kashi i will not marry her and this is a great renunciation which i am doing no he realized that there was no person called the princess of kashi there was no such person other than himself my own self appeared to me as the princess of kashi in delusion i thought that was a different person and i wanted that person my own self existence consciousness bliss appears as the universe and in delusion i think that's a separate universe there are nice things to have there are terrible things to give up you know the things i must avoid disease and hunger and death and poverty and there are things which i must have i must have wealth i must be popular i must have people around me i must be uh, healthy all of these things i must have and these are the things i must give up that's because i have identified myself with the body mind complex the moment i realize i am the immortal existence consciousness bliss then i need i neither have any desire for any particular thing nor any rejection then with the body and mind i continue to do what has to be done what is the right thing to do that i continue to do but i i do not need the world to fulfill me i do not need the world to fulfill me when do i need the world to fulfill me because when i think i am limited i need something the moment you think you are a body and mind you are inevitably limited and you need something but when you realize you are the ever perfect ever free existence consciousness bliss then from that vantage point you don't need anything yeah the body still needs food you'll give it food right seeing the world in this way as brahman as existence consciousness bliss that is the renunciation of the world not seeing the world as world seeing the world as god vivekananda said never approach anything except as god that itself is the renunciation of the world the isha upanishad says the first sentence of the isha upanishad isha vasyam idam sarvam yatkincha jagatyam jagat the first sentence says 
whatever you experience in this world, the literal meaning is cover it with God. Isha Vasya means cover it with God. What do you mean cover it with God? Shankaracharya in his, in his commentary does some neat maneuvering. He says, first of all, take the word Isha. Isha means God. By God, Isha. So cover it by God. He says, what is Isha? What is God? In Vedanta, God is our inner self. Paramatma Swarupam, our inner self. What is our inner self? The self itself, your reality. So when he says cover everything by God, what it means is cover everything you experience by the self, by yourself. How do you cover everything by yourself? Am I supposed to cover everything with a cloth or something? No. He says cover everything means uncover God in everything. How do you uncover God in everything? He says that means discover God in everything. It works very nicely in English. Cover everything by God means uncover God, your real self in everything. It means discover God in everything. How do you discover God in everything? Because God is your real self, inquire into the self, what am I? You will end up finding yourself as infinite awareness and consciousness. Awareness, consciousness, existence, bliss. And you will realize that is the stuff of the universe. So whatever you experience is actually that. Let me give you another example. How does seeing everything as Brahman, how is it renunciation of the world? Um, take the example of, the classic example of a clay pot, of a pot. I'll show you how you renounce a pot. Renounce, renunciation of a pot, the basic practice would be, like becoming a monk is to throw away the pot. So I've given up. That's what becoming a monk means. You know, you throw away all the obligations, relations, your possessions, everything. But what Shankaracharya say is saying here is, what, the, what is the Advaitic approach? The, the example would be like this. You see that the pot is made of clay. The pot is an effect, the cause, the material cause of which is clay. Okay, so far? Stage one. Stage two, examine the pot. Where is the clay? It's everywhere in the pot. The top of the pot is clay. The bottom of the pot is clay. The sides are clay. The inside is clay. It's through and through clay only. Stage two. In the pot you find clay only. Stage three. There is, you come to the realization, there is no pot apart from the clay. There is no pot apart from the clay. Stage four is when you say, now you look at the two words you're using, clay and pot. Clay and pot. You're using two words. Are there two things? Are you following me? When I use two words, book and clock, there are two things. Here, here's one thing, here's one thing. So the two words are justified. I'm using book to name this and clock to name this. If I say pot and clay, two words, which word is justified? Clay. clay. Are you following me? And then what is a pot? It's a name and a particular form and a particular use. Name, form, transaction. Nama, Rupa, Vyavahara. You might say at least it's a name and form, but what is the name and form? 
Does the form have anything substantial apart from the clay? Suppose you take the clay away, will the form of the pot remain? Something round floating in the air? Nothing will remain. Take away the clay, nothing is left. So the form has no substantial reality. And the name is just a word. What have you reduced the pot to? That nice, round, beautiful pot? Which you paid so much in pottery barn for or something like that? Eh? What have you reduced it to? Nothing. It's clay. There is no thing called pot. The pot has disappeared. You say, no Swami, it's right there. But what's there is clay. So, this insight into the pot, that it is nothing other than clay, constitutes the renunciation of the pot. With me so far? Right. If you can see this world and yourself as one unbroken ocean of being, Sat, an unbroken ocean of awareness, Chit, existence, consciousness, bliss, then everything else in the world, body, mind, uh, pot, <laughs> book, clock, husband, wife, children, Manhattan, the world, the universe, everything becomes name and form. Because what's the substance? Existence, consciousness, bliss. It's Brahman. That's How do you do that? All the classes that we have done, the 30 classes which preceded this, we have been learning to do that. To recognize the isness in everything. Once you dwell upon that, dwell upon the clay, take your attention away from the pot, name and form. You begin to see its clay alone. Dwell upon the isness and the awareness. You begin to see its isness and awareness with a layer of names and forms. And that isness awareness is you. Chidat Matva. Atma means you. This universe is nothing but you. Without the real you, there is no universe. That's the claim which is made. Remember, when I say you, it does not mean you, this person. It does not mean this body. It does not mean this individual. It means that infinite awareness shining through the channel of this body-mind. Okay. So, the universe becomes a name. A name for which there is no object, like the pot. The pot is a name for which there is no object because the object is clay. Here the object is or the reality is Satchidananda. Universe, name alone, form alone. That is renunciation. Once you have that outlook, nothing in the universe will attract you or repel you anymore because it's you. Think about your dream. Every person in the dream is you. Every object in the dream is you. Every event in the dream, good, bad, ugly, every event in the dream is you. What can attract you in a dream after you wake up? What can attract you in a dream? What can repel you in a dream? It's you. It's you, number one. Number two, it's not real. It's a, it's a projection of your, your reality. In the same way, this waking world, that's the claim of Vedanta, is also a projection of Satchidananda. So, enough said, that's the higher practice of renunciation. Now you can see this renunciation does not require you to become a monk. You can be an emperor like Janaka, you can be a housewife, you can be a teacher, you can be a student, you can be a multimillionaire, you can be a homeless person, whatever the outward name and form, you are that infinite existence consciousness place. 
renunciation you see fear of death will go away i was just reading um i think it was in the london review of books i saw it on the internet midlife crisis a, a philosopher in england has written a very nice book on midlife crisis but what is midlife crisis you feel that life has caught up with you and overtaken you one feels that i am in my 50s or my 60s that's it he he writes quite beautifully after all when i look forward to my life what else remains in life he's in his maybe 50s or so a series of minor achievements all leading up to a rather nasty end this is a guarantee that it will all this will not end well for me a 100% fatality life is the only <laughs> disease which has a 100% fatality then what happens is you look back upon your life has it gone so fast i remember being a little child i remember being a teenager a young person full of hopes and uh, eagerness to taste life and now i feel it's all gone it's an instant when you because you think of yourself as this limited individual birth and death cut off on both ends an infinity of time and space behind where i'm not and an infinity of time and space stretching out ahead after my death where i am not then immediately why why should there not be a midlife crisis but he writes that his friend also went through the midlife crisis he dumped his wife and children and went off to the bahamas to to and married his pot dealer <laughs> and the philosopher thought he would do something philosophical instead of doing that <laughs> something more constructive and he wrote this book about midlife crisis but you have no midlife prelife afterlife no crisis at all when you stabilize yourself as the infinite brahman to you this little life becomes nothing it's it's a little it, it's a little drama played on an infinite stage which you are you are in all lives sarva bhutani chamatsthani all beings are me and i am in all beings you actually feel that fear of death simply goes away it's laughable then you don't feel limited by this life so a midlife crisis and other things because all the achievements of your life imagine all the great things you achieved in a dream when you wake up they are nice but really not important because they are not real all the terrible things that happened to you in a dream bad that was a bad dream but again not real here all of these things happened they dwindle into first of all insignificance in the scale in the oceans of time that you have seen and you will see time and space play in you you are not a spark in time and space then they are not only insignificant you realize they are also unreal compared to you they borrow your reality and play their games so from that vantage point what problem enjoy this life and if you want many more lives to come if you don't want then remain as the absolute <laughs> so that is renunciation he says it immediately gives liberation no need to explain this if you can have this attitude if this becomes real for you for even an instant that is liberation that is moksha sadyo moksha maya sadya means instant liberation if you once get this insight 
instant liberation. All right. <clears throat> the next three practices, the next three verses deal with the next practice, the fourth practice, which is monam. Monam means silence. Now that is paradoxical, rather uh, considering how much I've been speaking. Now I'm going to continue speaking about silence. <laughs> I'm going to talk a lot about silence now. So the next practice is monam. And Shankaracharya devotes three nice verses, insightful verses into monam. Again, remember, basic practice, advanced interpretation. The dualistic practice and the non-dualistic uh, practice, the dwelling in the non-dualistic knowledge. So three verses. We'll read the three verses together and then I'll talk about it. 107. Yasmadvacho nivartante. Aprapya manasasaha. Aprapya manasasaha. Yanmonam yogi bhir gamyam. Yanmonam yogi bhir gamyam. Tadbhavet sarvada buddhaha. Tadbhavet sarvada buddhaha. What it means is the wise should always be one with that silence from which words together with the mind turn back without reaching it but which is attainable by the yogins. The yogins here mean those the jnana yogins. The, those are the, the yogis on the path of knowledge. Then 108 and 109 or they have conveniently given it together. Vacho yasmat nivartante Vacho yasmat nivartante Tadvaktum ke na shakyate Tadvaktum ke na shakyate Prapancho yadi vaktavya Prapancho yadi vaktavya Sopi shabda vivarjitaha Sopi shabda vivarjitaha Iti vatad bhaved maunam Iti vatad bhaved maunam Satam sahaja sangitam Satam sahaja sangitam Gira maunam tu balanam Giramonam to Balanam Prayuktam Brahmavadibhi Prayuktam Brahmavadibhi 108 and 9 Who can describe that Brahman whence words turn away? So silence is inevitable while describing while trying to describe Brahman. Or if if you if the phenomenal world were to be described, even that is beyond words. This to give an alternate definition may also be termed silence known among the sages as congenital congenital sounds like something okay, you have a di disease, a condition sahajam means natural natural, that spontaneous so this is spontaneous silence or natural silence the observance of silence by restraining speech on the other hand is ordained by the teachers of Brahman for the ignorant Balalam literally means for children but let's start with the children because we probably we are most of us that's the one which we will find most effective the first the most obvious practice of silence is silence of the speech don't talk so it's a well-known practice among spiritual seekers of all kinds in India to observe vows of silence for varying periods of time so you decide maybe today I won't talk I won't talk at all do everything else they won't talk why? 
The reason is an enormous amount of energy is spent in speech. And an enormous part of our speech is totally useless. Not only useless, it is harmful positively sometimes. Speaking a lot not only exhausts energy, it disturbs the mind. Whatever you speak outwardly reverber reverberates in the mind. It sets up a series of echoes in the mind. And it interferes with your meditation. So speaking is generally not a good idea. <laughs> unless necessary. So, um, unless you're talking about silence, then you have to speak. So this was well known among the yogis. They understood how much of psychic energy is wasted in unnecessary speech. So they practiced maunam, silence. Many people, Mahatma Gandhi famously, I think one day a week was devoted to silence. I don't know which day it was. Swami Ranganathananda, I know about this about him. He was the 13th president of our order. I think Thursdays, at least at one period in his life, I think throughout his life, Thursdays he would not speak. So that's a simple practice. I shall not speak. I shall not waste my energy in speaking. Um, I know of this person, I knew his pastor very recently. He's a great philosopher, but not famous. Because uh, he ne never gave talks, he never wrote articles, never published books. So he's not well known. But he spent his last days in our ashrams. One of my friends, another monk, lived closely with him for some time. So he told me many stories about that philosopher. I met that philosopher too, and a brilliant person, incisive intelligence, I mean just penetrating intelligence. Um, he, so one day my friend, the monk, asked this philosopher, Sir, it's amazing when I speak with you, you explain things so beautifully. You should give talks. Why don't you give lectures? Why don't you write articles? Or why don't you write books? You know, you're so good, really, people don't know what a treasure you, you are. And the, that philosopher had a curious way of speaking, you know, he said, Ah, Swami, those who speak a lot, they don't write well. Those who write a lot, they don't think. I think. <laughs> he said, I think. That Swami was not convinced. He, my friend, he went to the head of the ashram. He said somebody, no, he didn't do it. He liked this philosopher a lot. The head of the ashram, who was Swami Lokeshwaranda, some of you might know. He was a visionary monk, a great monk. Somebody complained about this philosopher. What good is he? He's just staying here. He's not doing anything. He doesn't give lectures or classes. He doesn't publish. And the Swami just replied, he was a man of few words. He replied, a few such people should always be there. It's good to have such people around you, he said. <laughs> he recognized the depth in that person. All right. Now the problem with all of this. The problem is, people take it to extremes, just like any practice. Just suppression of speech is suppression. <clears throat> I know this Two examples I'll give. I know this, I knew, I knew this monk uh, who, was, who took up a vow of silence. So he was silent for, I think, a few years, one year or two years. He wouldn't speak. But he had, of course, this elaborate system of gestures by which he would communicate. 
Now the interesting thing is, I was his roommate for one night. We were passing through the same ashram, so he uh, he was in the bed next to mine. All night long, he kept on talking. <laughs> when he fell asleep, he started, and he did not stop until he got up. <laughs> and next day in the morning, I told him, Swami, I was a novice. I shouldn't have done that. He was a Swami. I was a novice. Swami, you are talking to yourself at night. You're talking in your sleep. And of course, he's back to his gesturing. So he said, means who, me? No, no, not me. That can't be true. Who, me? No. That's one example. That's suppression. You do it for one day, it's all right. But you do it for one or two years, there's a lot you have to say and it gets bottled up. And then it comes out. Then this other monk I knew, a very good monk. I mean, I stayed with him in, in the Himalayas for a few days. In, in one of the huts. So he had been in a vow of silence for 10 years, I think, 10 years or so. And of course, he also had an elaborate system of gestures and everything. You have to communicate somehow. But a good, good monk, very, very nice. But the funny thing happened was, the instructive thing was, after he broke his vow of silence 10 years or 12 years, something like that, stopped. Then he went on a tour of India, giving everybody a piece of his mind. <laughs> He would not stop. So if he visited your ashram, you would, you would know that he's coming and people would like find excuses to avoid him. Because he'd grab hold of you and not stop. Was he sharing deep Vedantic wisdom? No. He was telling you what's wrong with the ashram, why he dislikes this person, why that person is awful, what's wrong with the, with the society and what's going wrong with politics. Everything under the sun which was bottled up for 12 years, he'll give the, you the brunt of it. So it's an extreme case. Another monk, I didn't see him, but I heard about him. In the, there are many such in the Himalayas, who has an avow of silence, but he communicates with, a, he has a slate and a chalk. You know, he communicates with chalk. All right. So what's the balance? The very beautiful rule which I found was, Satyam cha, hitam cha, mitam cha, bruyat, abhisamvadi, peshalam. What does it mean? Speak the truth, one, satyam. Speak little, mitam. Mitam means measured, as less as possible, economical. Hitam, that which is beneficial. Does it do you any good? Does it do others any good? Abhisamvadi, universal, which is not taking sides. And there goes all our political commentators and you know, fighting over this side or that. Don't speak things which are basically controversial, which will lead to more disturbance. Abhisamvadi, which is general and universal, applicable to all. And Peshalam, sweet. I like that they added that. Sweet means, Peshalam literally means komal, which means soft, gentle. And Delicate, gentle, sweet. If you look at the, the speech of, um, say, the Holy Mother, so, so, so gentle. So it should be truthful, it should be measured, it should be useful, it should not be, give rise to controversy and debate and argumentation, unless that's your job, you might do a little bit of that. And then finally, it should be gentle. Another rule I heard from another monk was, Think over it thrice before you open your mouth. So at, if not thrice, I made it a rule at least once. 
These simple rules are difficult enough to practice, let alone maunam, which is a complete vow of silence. But these simple rules are actually much better than just forcefully keeping quiet. Now these are the basic practices. Maunam, the basic practice of silence. What is the advanced practice? What is he talking about? He gives us um, the, the highest interpretation of silence. What is silence from a non-dualistic perspective? Brahman is silence. The absolute is silence. You are silence. In the Mandukya Upanishad, seventh mantra, Atma, the self, you, they, they give a series of um, terms to point to the Atma, pointers. One of the terms is Shantam, the peaceful. Or not peaceful, peace itself. Quietude is itself. Silence itself. Now this silence which you are, this is Brahman. And this silence is not the opposite of noise. Right now, there's a kind of silence here. When I don't speak, silence. This silence is broken by noise, by speech. But this is the silence which underlies noise also. When there is no noise, no sound, no speech, there is silence. When there is noise and sound and speech, there is also silence underlying it. All noise and speech arises out of this silence and sinks back into this silence. This is the real silence and it is actually there. Right now, right here. Where? You can't hear it with your ears. It's you. It is Brahman. That pure consciousness is also silence. It's a kind of shining silence, I might say. It shines forth as all of this. But in itself, it is silence. The highest teaching is also silence. In the Dakshinamurti Stotram, Shankaracharya chants, he says, the guru, the, the teacher is a young person. The students are all old, a senior. And the, the teachers and the, and the teacher teaches in silence and the doubts of the students are dispelled. Guru Yuva Vriddhastu Shishya Maunam Vyakhyanam Explanation is in silence. Shishyastu Chinna Samshaya And the doubts of the disciples are dispelled. Does it happen? It happens. If you did see the description of people who went to Ramana Maharshi, would sit in the cave with Ramana Maharshi, in silence. They would come back with their doubts. I don't know if they, their doubts were answered, questions were answered, or rather the, the doubts were dissolved, not solved. So that is the silence. And that's what we are and that is Brahman. So he says, Brahman is the real silence. Dwell on this fact that my real nature is silence. Um, that from which all words and thoughts recoil in failure. That which words cannot express. When I say book, the word book has succeeded in expressing this. This. When I say Brahman, what has it succeeded in ex ex expressing? You can't say. What does it point to? You might, you might say, oh, existence, consciousness, bliss. Those are more words. What do they point to? That which they point to cannot be expressed directly in language. 
So language fails to express Brahman and hence silence is the correct expression of Brahman, is the correct indicator of Brahman. Why does language fail to ex express Brahman? I have mentioned this earlier in other talks and for a detailed explanation please go to my talk um, The Paradox of Language, Advaita and the Paradox of Language, it's on, on YouTube. Why does language fail to express the highest? We keep saying beyond words, beyond thought, but why beyond words? And do you not use words? Brahman, Atman, existence, consciousness, you're using so many words. And yet they all fail. Why do they fail? Why, does lang why is language incapable of expressing Brahman? No time. Mm. Alright, let me launch into it quickly. I'll just give you the outline of it, no details. Language, we have to look at how language functions. And by the way, the source for this is Shankaracharya um, in the commentary leading to the seventh mantra of the Mandukya Upanishad. There he discusses why language is incapable of expressing the Absolute. He says, what can language do? Let's take a look at what language can do. And then we will realize what it cannot do. So what can language do? Language depends on five factors. If any one of them is present, language will work just like that. What are the factors? One, jati, that means class or species or category. If an object belongs to a particular class, say book, this is a class of objects called books. I know what a book is, so I can look at this and say, okay, this is, it belongs to that category of things, it's a book. Shankaracharya gives the example of a cow. It belongs to a species. So I can say this particular animal is a cow because I see all the characteristics of that species in this animal. So if you have a species or a class or a category, you can use language. Brahman is one. To have a category, you need more than one. If there was only one book in the world, you wouldn't know what it is. So Brahman, it's, there is no category, no jati which you can apply to Brahman, it won't work. Then the second thing which language does is, it uses guna, quality. The white tablecloth. I've indicated this tablecloth directly by saying it is white tablecloth. What did I do? If there were multiple tablecloths, you would know to pick out this one because I said white. The color white gives you the clue. This is what I'm talking about. So a quality. Call the tall man. Call this. So any quality. Any attribute, any property, if you have that, you can use it. Uh -huh. So the red flower, the blue lotus or something like that. So the quality is used, colors or any kind of property. But Brahman, you know, nirgunam, beyond any property or quality. So you cannot use a quality. Can't say, bring me the fat Brahman. <laughs> you can't. The, so Brahman is beyond all qualities, you can't even the qualities, omniscient, omnipresent, all of those apply to God, Saguna Brahman, Brahman with qualities, but the Absolute is beyond all qualities. Third, language works on action, function, call the driver, we want to know who is the driver of the car parked in, the, in front of the building. So you are talking about a person in designating him with or her with the driver, the function. A driver, a cook, a priest, a teacher, function. Brahman has no function. Brahman is the laziest thing in the universe. Doesn't do anything, nishkriyam, without any action. 
You can't use action to designate Brahman. What did Brahman do that you can point out to Brahman? Nothing. Brahman created this world? Didn't. Because there's no real world to be created from Brahman's point of view. Then if that doesn't work, there's a third one, right? Then the fourth one is relation, sambandha. When you say father, it means there's a son or a daughter, therefore that person is a father. A relation can indicate somebody. But to have a relation, you need at least two. So two terms at least are needed for a relation. You can't have a relation with one. Brahman, there's no second apart from Brahman because Brahman is non-dual. No second thing, Advaitam. No second entity is there. So you can't have a relationship. Then the last thing you can do is what they call Rudi or convention. You can use words by convention. I call this person John. Why? What category or quality or something, function did you say, see that to call him John? Nothing of that sort. Just by convention, this person is named John. So can't we name Brahman like that? This is named Brahman. Won't work. Why? Because to name a baby or a person John, what must you do? If you just say, if I just say, oh, that's John. Immediately you'll ask, which one? I'll have to point that person out to you. Otherwise it will not work. Naming will not work unless you point it out. Naming works only when you designate it. This person or this entity is called X, Y or Z. Can you point out Brahman? You cannot. So you cannot name, give, a, give a name, an arbitrarily a name to Brahman because you can't point it out. If you use a name, people won't know what you are referring to. Alright. So because of the lack of these five characteristics, category, jati, quality, guna, action, kriya, sambandha, relation, and convention, brudhi, you cannot apply any one of these. And therefore, language cannot apply to Brahman. Did you follow me? I think I gave you the entire gist of the speech, on which you need not go to YouTube now. All of this explanation, Shankaracharya gives in a power-packed phrase. Shabda pravritti nimitta rahitattvat. The activators of, because Brahman lacks the activators of the use of language. Therefore language cannot apply to Brahman. That's all. What are the activators? These five. Pravritti means activating something. Language does not apply to Brahman. Hence, silence. And then he talks, in the second verse, he talks about, alright, so you're going to speak about the world, you might say, okay, forget Brahman, let's speak about the world. He says, you cannot say a single truthful thing about the world. Whatever you talk about the world is, uh, is bound by many conditions. The world is Maya, a projection of Maya. If you really want to describe the world, language will fail, fail there too. Whatever you might say about the book, this is uh, of this size, it has a brown cover and uh, it contains something about Vedanta, it will still fall far short of this book. This book itself is infinity. There's so much in this. You can describe it at the level of literature, you can describe it at the level of chemistry, you can describe it at the level of physics. You can just go on deeper and deeper and deeper. You cannot give a comprehensive definition, explanation or description. You cannot give a comprehensive, Shankaracharya says, you cannot give a comprehensive description of even the meanest entity in this world. 
language is inadequate. The only truthful thing here is silence. Language works for your practical use, it works, but it's not a descri describer of truth, of reality. I read this book called Impossibility by John Barrow. John Barrows, where he says, Today, in our scientific pursuits, we have come to a dead end, or at least a paradox, at the heart of every fundamental science. Investigating physics, investigating chemistry, biology, mathematics, we end up with paradoxes. As the field advances enough, at one time you think, I can explain everything. Hundred years later, at the heart of it is a black hole. <laughs> he gives example. Um, I mean, I myself was, I was just thinking, I read somewhere, the three greatest discoveries in physics uh, of, uh, and in science of the 20th century are uh, Einstein's theory of relativity, or Heisenberg's principle of uncertainty, and Kurt Gödel's this, uh, uh, theorem of incompleteness. Look at the terms. Look at the terms. Relativity, uncertainty, incompleteness. These are the fundamentals of physics and mathematics. These are exactly the terms used to describe Maya. I'm not saying that the, the ancient philosophers knew about the principle of uncertainty or relativity or incompleteness. No, no, not, 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 nothing like that. I'm just saying if you take the big picture, where has science come to now? Especially compared to 19th century. 18th and 19th century scientists, they were expecting completeness. The mathematicians expected to complete the system of mathematics. That was one of, what was his name, Hilbert's program, in that uh, uh, the whole idea behind the, uh, the Principia Mathematica, which Bertrand Russell and Whitehead were writing. Um, Hil Hilbert, of course, gave the, to complete mathematics, as far as I understand. And that failed because of Gödel's uh, insight. He was right here in Princeton. Gödel? Good Gödel? Yeah in Princeton, in the Institute of Advanced Studies. So incompleteness, relativity, uh, uncertainty. Barrow's point, John Barrow's points out, at the heart of every subject, when you advance far enough, you begin to see that reality is slipping out of your hand. He quotes one, bu one biologist, he says, as I search for what life is, I go from body to the organs to the tissues, to the cells, to the subcellular structures, to the organic molecules, and I find somewhere along the way life has slipped out of my hand. I've ended up with non-living things, with starting with a living thing, but where exactly the margin was, I could not find. As I work my way up again, I find suddenly somewhere life has appeared. It's paradoxical, even life is paradoxical. And if you go into the heart of physics, if you go into the heart of pure mathematics, and logic like Gödel did, Enormous, like it says, like a monster is sitting at the heart of modern science. That they're struggling, grand unified theory, it's struggling to find it. So, anyway, what Shankaracharya says here is even this phenomenal world you cannot describe with any degree of truth. So, silence is, the real, is prescribed for both for this world and for, for Brahman. That he says is the real silence. Of course, you can go on speaking. He says, Sahajam, it should be a natural silence. And this, 
that natural silence is perfectly compatible with speech. Perfectly compatible with speech. I heard about, I read about um, a sadhu in the Himalayas whose hut said, Sahaj Mauni, the naturally silent person, and who really went on speaking a lot. <laughs> but he meant it. He says, I'm established in Brahman. My nature is silence. What you do with your voice box and tongue, that is at the surface. So he concludes by saying, what about the silence that everybody else practices? You are giving some abstract philosophical meaning. He says, that silence is also good. It's pres prescribed for talkative kids. Balanam. The silence of speech is prescribed for children. By whom? Brahmavadibi. By the knowers of by the knowers of Brahman. Not bad, but it's like a kid who is running around and talking a lot and you say sharply, sit down, keep quiet, listen to me. That's the kind of effect that a vow of silence has. It, you tell the naughty mind, quiet, no thinking allowed, sit quietly. Then depth comes in the mind. So that has a good effect, but that is surface. The deeper meaning is Brahman. Brahman itself is silence. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu